You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. And Tracy, we are back and it's weird for me to be on a Saturday and not be in the mountains after two weekends in the mountains in a row. I know. It must be it must be heartbreaking to return to civilization after your your very civilized No, because now I have good internet, unlike I oh, had okay. with Maurice Broadus, which my internet sucked and I had to be very, very quiet so not to spook it and make it drop me completely. Yeah, it did it was a little scary there for a bit, but you know, fortunately Mo Mo and I were were happy to tangle and Mo <laughs> Mo makes good company as far as that goes. Yes. Yeah. Speaking so, of good company. Yeah, for sure. This is we've got a couple of we talk a lot the two of the two of us sometimes both on the air and and behind closed doors about like being excited about certain guests or like certain pieces of the lineup and whatnot. And I've been excited about this particular recording weekend for like months. <laughs> It's been, it's been the thing that, that like when you're a kid and you go to sleep before, you know, the weeks before Christmas, you're like X number of sleeps until. And so I've been doing my number of sleeps until John Scalzi for a while now. John, how are you doing? I am feeling way oversold there at the moment. I'm not nearly (laughs) exciting, but hello. (laughs) So, okay, Patrick, did I ever tell you my, how I didn't really meet John Scalzi, but it's my way of rounding up extremely to say that I met John Scalzi story? Probably, but I've slept since then. You know how that affects Yeah, yeah. It just wipes the whole hard drive. Yep. So this would have been 2018. So it's been a minute. And it was... To the before uh, times. Yes, in the before times, in fact. It was Confusion uh, in the Detroit area. And John was there uh, doing the the dance party, as he often does, and various other things. He was just there for the weekend, being a stand-up human. And I had been doing a lot of panels and stuff at that particular con and had just recently gotten off of a, a panel with Patrick Nielsen Hayden and had, was kind of riding high. I was feeling good about myself right there. And so I went to the bar with some friends and not really being a drinker, but the bar is where one goes. It's one of those big horseshoe shaped dudes. And on one side of the bar, I'm with Jason Sanford and John Wiswell and Angus Watson and a couple of other folks. And we're all chatting with one another. And I notice opposite end of the horseshoe is John Scalzi, who is looking at his watch and kind of, you know, kind of looking around and, you know, waiting for a drink and talks to the to the bartender for a minute and, and passes a tip to the bartender and and time passes and, and John's still there. And so I look at Jason, my John, all these other folks over here, and I'm like, I think I think John Scalzi is 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 lonely. Like, we can't let John Scalzi be lonely. Like, I'm going to go invite John Scalzi over here. And apparently what saying John Scalzi three times in a row is like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Because then <laughs> what ended up happening was clear across this not quiet bar, he calls over to me, I'm I'm good, Tracy. I'm I'm waiting for I'm waiting for my wife. She's she's coming. I'm fine. Thank you, though. Thank you very much. I'm I'm good. And then I turned to everybody else and I'm like, did you know John Scalzi is a lip reader? Like, did you did you know he hears real, real good? And so that's that's my how I kind of sort of didn't meet John Scalzi's story. So. That is a funny thing because you are absolutely correct. I am like a puppy. So if my <laughs> name is just uttered once, I like what is that? And like, so and it, and obviously it's not the John part because really, yeah. But yeah. but Scalzi, Scalzi is a word form that just travels. So oh yeah, 
And nobody uses it except in context with me. Even when they're talking about Chrissy, they'll just say Chrissy, you know, or mm-hmm. something like that. So anytime Scalzi is being used, it's like, what? Somebody's talking about me? It's the <laughs> it's the in real person, you know, Google ego search of yeah. the soul yeah. is uh, is what happens. But thank you for being concerned that I was lonely. I do appreciate that. Well, it, it, and, it, and, clearly, and, clearly you've done fine. <laughs> and you're here to talk about your new book, Google Ego Search for the Soul, right? Oh, that, yeah, that was know, a pretty. That was a pretty good title. It's, it's self help <laughs> for narcissists. Ooh, that's. I mean, that is um, kind of kind of trenchant in in these current times, ain't it? And, and, and <laughs> it each really is. And you know, the worst part about it is, of course, I could absolutely use that because I am. I am an ego searcher like you would not believe. I was like, what are people saying about me today? <laughs> oh, no. See, I, I, my day job is that I'm a teacher and uh, you learn very quickly, which is a, a valuable skill as well for being an author and the very small scale at which I am an author. You learn really quickly that you don't want to be Googling your name when you're a teacher because, because the kids and the former kids, they are everywhere and they have <laughs> thoughts. And for, for, they have at times maintained entire private Facebook groups and various other things that collect out of context statements of mine or, or pictures of things that I've written on papers and just, yeah. So I've been trained out of that habit, actually. It's quite, <laughs> quite, quite the opposite for me. <laughs> uh, but you are, in fact, here to talk about a real book, not the self-help for narcissists, the Kaiju Preservation Society, which, full disclosure, I sat down last night and started reading my art copy of it. And I missed my bedtime. And I almost uh, missed logging on to this Zencaster call when I needed to because I was still reading it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just having the best time. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Sorry about the lack of sleep. But actually, no, I'm not it, sorry at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not at all. Sorry, not sorry, as they say. So, okay, before I go off on anything, let's and, and catch- Hold on, hold on. I also want like, to clarify yeah, yeah. that, that normally when we, when we start the call – we start, you know, like BSing about our week. We start mm-hmm. talking about, yeah. you know, plans for upcoming things that we're doing as the functional nerds. Today, Tracy got on and immediately started talking about your book. Sure. Like, immediately. And holds it up to the thing. And she's like, I've been going through this. I've been laughing my butt off. And, and yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. She's not blowing smoke. She really, really is getting into the book. <laughs> All right. So before I, I run my mouth any further and deny John any opportunity to actually be present in his own damn podcast episode, John, catch the, the listeners up to the Kaiju Preservation Society. What even is this thing? The, the way that I've been describing to people, because I want to avoid spoilers whenever possible, is I say it's about friendship and science and large animals, and the occasional nuclear explosion. And uh, I think that that's, that's the, the way that I basically pitched it. Actually, no, that's not true. The way that I basically pitched it to Patrick, uh, my editor, was I sent him a graphic of, of Godzilla eating a helicopter and said, this is the next book. <laughs> That's I long for the day when I will be able to have that type of creative relationship where someone where I can just like send them a meme and be like, book time? Going to do book, book now. Yeah. Book for me? Book yes, for me. No, can do. I've been, I've been I've been very, very fortunate that I think it it helps that so many of my books are are basically memeable as concepts. I mean, when you when you write a book that is literally called red shirts, right? 
Yeah. You, you, you know what you're about. You know what you're doing and you, you have uh, said, I'm going to pull this directly out of yeah. The, yeah. the common culture and splash it out for 80,000 words. Are you okay with that? And Tor, strangely, seems to think that that's a good idea. So I get to get away with it. Well, as a, as a huge fan of Star Trek, I, I absolutely adored Red Shirts. I thought that was a fantastic book. And, and it always made me wonder if you, if you actually wanted to write a Star Trek book and just decided you didn't want to mess with their universe and their rules. Mm, no, you know, the thing is, is that I've been invited a number of times to write in media universes, right? And, I, and I've sort of avoided it for a couple of reasons. One, I am extremely lazy. This will be a recurring theme in our conversation. <laughs> and part of the thing about writing in a media universe is that there are rules and there are strictures and there's a Bible that they give you of all the things that you can and you can't do. And my reaction to all of that is just like, oh, why? <laughs> so we want homework. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all homework. And it's like, what do you mean I need to know this stuff? Why can't I just do this? You know? And so that's part of the reason that I don't do it. But the other reason is you know, I was a film critic for years and years and I've been very opinionated in, you know, in the before times about certain media properties. And so there's always a problem that if I were to do something, for example, in the Star Wars universe, that somebody on, you know, coming up on the release of the book, uh, someone would go back and find my not at all charitable comments about the prequel trilogy and be like, so you said these horrible things and yet you're taking Lucasfilm money are, you know, why are you a hypocrite? And, and it also might be a headache for them as well. So I've just basically sort of sworn off. But the thing about red shirts is, is that as a concept, it's not just uh, something that's confined to the Star Trek universe. We use it as a shorthand for yeah. uh, anybody who's an expendable thing in, a, in science fiction. In the same way, you know, the to go back to, to Kaiju, which is very similar in tone, I think, in many ways to, to red shirts. Everybody knows what a kaiju is, even if they don't know what the word kaiju means. They know Godzilla. They know these big monsters. There's Mothra. Uh, right. It's yeah. so steeped. It's so steeped in the culture that it's it's hard to miss. But in both cases of red shirts and kaiju, what was fun for me is to be coming in on it from a slightly different angle than than the memes usually approach it or the satire usually approaches it. So. Yeah. Well, I guess, and again, I'm going to, with respect to not spoiling anything here, I'm going to tread lightly and hope to still frame a question that is legible <laughs> for everyone involved. So let's try. Yeah. You know, the, the parallels that people might draw or the comp titles that people might pull from or, uh, or concept comps that you could pull from, kind of obviously Jurassic Park would be one of them. Because sure. we have the idea of there, there is a space where kaiju are a thing. But in a lot of ways... In the same way that like Red Shirts is drawing off of the concept of the disposable tertiary character who you, you know, we, we get rid of them because it's convenient to demonstrate that the danger is real, but our plot armored characters get to continue to move along. In, this, in that similar way, the Kaiju Preservation Society is kind of exploring that idea of science that ought not to do from a very different angle from what Jurassic Park does. You know, mm -hmm. Jurassic Park is more interested in sort of digging into John Hammond did this thing, 
probably he should have not. And we have sort of like Ian Malcolm as like the voice of scientific reasoning happening the whole time in the background. But instead here we have this, this idea where the defenders of the kaiju are not just scrappy people who get pulled in at sort of like the last minute and have to kind of pick up the pieces of what some billionaire moron has done. <laughs> but they, they are in fact their own organized group, that they have their yeah. own technology, they have their own set of interests, and that it's not the existence of these beings itself that's problematic. It's people mm. who are problematic. People are just the worst. What can you say about them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a recurring theme in literature. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> the the thing that it was interesting for me uh, when I was thinking, you know, in in terms of thinking about kaiju, just in a general sense, and I think that this goes to to your your question, is that usually when we think about kaiju, we are thinking about them as interlopers, right? They are, have come over to our world, however it is that they have come over, whatever reason that they're here, but they are not supposed to be here. Right. And they wreak the havoc and their crisis and that crisis has to be resolved for me. And with the with the formation of this uh, group, which is literally called the Kaiju Preservation Society, um, it's kind of it's kind of flipped around. It's not that the Kaiju have come to Earth and are wrecking the place. It is that we have come to where they are and we are. We are studying them. We are being the people who are trying to understand them in their own context. We are the ones who are out of context in that particular case. And I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, just simply because it's so rare that it gets presented in that sort of way. I'm not saying that I'm the first ever to do that because obviously then all the nerds will come after me going, well, we're no, actually- no, the nerd horde is sharpening its weapons as we speak. Yes. Right. Exactly. You know, when they go to Skull Island, they're really the interlopers <laughs> there. You know, it's like, it's like, mm, we could get into it, but we won't. <laughs> but the, but the other thing is, is also it's remapping the concept of what is the human's relationship with the kaiju and vice versa. Usually when the kaiju come over, our relationship with them is they must be stopped, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, dun, dun, dun. Right, exactly. Uh-oh, there goes Tokyo. But in the in the context of this book, they don't need to be stopped. You know, they are, they're just doing what they do. They are existing as they exist. And what, what do we do in that particular case? How do we keep them safe? How do we study them? How do we make sure that they don't endanger themselves by coming over to earth where they will become a problem? And that was fun for me to sort of uh, address and kind of build out because like I said, I didn't see too much of that going on. And also since it's, you know, science is an interest of mine and I love the idea of a bunch of intrepid scientists not going too far, going through the things that they should not do, but like, no, we're here to do science and every once in a while we have to do something that will be of benefit to these creatures and possibly us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has always seemed a little bit weird to me and I, I don't know if you've felt the same before, Patrick, that you know, in the world of science fiction, so often there is this kind of, if this goes on, dot, 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 
as the kind of modus operandi of the genre writ large. There's this kind of nascent, I don't know, I wouldn't exactly call it like Ludditism, but there's this like nascent suspicion of the technology. You, you start seeing people, gosh, what was the, there's like a magnetic robot glob thing that, that, that pictures were circulating of on Twitter not too long ago. Yeah. And all the yeah. SF people in my feed, of whom there are many, were circulating the pictures going like, oh, you have not <laughs> read the things you need to have read. When they were sort of like showing the videos of this sort of, you know, oozing along yeah. and collecting around things and so on. And well, I mean, how many, how, many times have, how many times has something happened and you've said, oh, shit, Skynet? Well, I mean, like Boston Robotics yeah. is, you know, murder running things, which, you know, Chuck Wendig sometimes has fun with, too, with his sort of like mini narratives of, you know, the, the, the hellscape that will remain. And the Boston Dynamics robot is like jogging along the, the barren hellscape. Mm. Yeah, but I guess my, my point in bringing this up is I one of the things I really like that happens frequently in in your whole oeuvre and your whole your whole body of work, John, is that. There isn't this idea that like, no, science bad, science stop, science, science do bad thing. But the idea of like science mm-hmm. may be the answer. Like we may just have to, this is an Andy Weirism here, but we might have to kind of science the shit out of this to find <laughs> sure. what the right response is and to know what we ought to do. Right. I, I mean, here's the thing. When I was back in the turn of the century, I reviewed video games, right? And I had the, the whole point of reviewing the video games was I was reviewing it for parents. You just made me feel so old. I was going to, I mean, I yeah, you. that was on purpose. <laughs> in, in the last millennium. That was an act <laughs> of war, John. War. Right. But continue with your adorable story about, about games that are safe. <laughs> So I, but I did the reviews uh, basically to let parents know what were in them so that they could do an informed choice about whether or not they wanted them for kids, which meant that every time I played a game, I played it like a over caffeinated, over sugared 10 year old boy, which, and the whole point of it was not how is it played, but how can I break this? So like, for example, in the first iteration of The Sims, the very first thing I did was I put a sim in a three by three, you know, box to find out what would happen to it if you do that to them. And the answer is they spin around, pee themselves and die. Right. The point of this, and I and I do have a point to this, is that we always uh, as people from 10 year old you know, children onward find ways to take whatever technology we have and do the thing that we absolutely should not do with it. I mean, I think it's totally valid the, you know, if this goes on sort of thing, because it's always the thing of, and we've seen this with tech, all the, all the tech dudes are super optimistic. It's like, no one will ever abuse social media in a way that would be horrible, right? Why would we do that? It's not rational. Humans are rational actors, you know? And then of course, you know, here we are in 2022. So uh, we have the, uh, it's reasonable for us to have that pessimism about science fiction or, or, or science. But at the same time, I think the thing is, is that that's fine for dramatic issues and that's fine for plot, you know, uh, concerns and all that sort of stuff. But the also reality of, of science is so much of it also just gets used in ways that become mundane and, and everyday. And that's the thing that really interests me. Like, for example, in the books, the lock-in books, right? Yeah. I didn't 
I didn't really spend time talking about you know developing the technology. I did a I did a little novella that was an oral history. Yeah. But the stories themselves are it's now 25 years after this Hayden pandemic Central. happened. Yeah, yeah the, the Hayden syndrome thing. And now we are just living with the technology and everybody, it's the technology that's every day. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the same way that if I went back to 1995 and gave myself a cell phone, I'd be like, this is the most amazing thing ever. It's a computer that I can hold in my hand and I can access all information. And look, there's a cat. <laughs> but but today, it's just the thing that I use to pass time while I'm, you know, while uh, I'm waiting for somebody to do something else. The day-to-day progression and adoption and use of science uh, in ways that are both mundane and optimistic is something that's interesting to me. And I don't think you can, uh, that that means that I don't look at the horrible things about you know, the technology or the ways that it can be abused. But for me, it becomes the scaffolding upon which that we can build a story as opposed to being the thing that we're like, this is horrible. It's like, no, science isn't horrible. People are horrible. And people will like, like I did when I put that poor Sim in a box, (laughs) they will do horrible things just to see what happens. And they're like, oh, well, that Mm -hmm. was fun. Let's do something else horrible. Yeah, I think what you're, what you're describing, Tracy, is is the the idea that uh, you went too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you went too far. You, yeah. you you went just a little bit too far with with this, and that's that. Now you've caused all these problems. That's the whole Jurassic Park yeah. thing, right? Yeah, and I think it's you know. Uh, a, a lot of science fiction, and let's face it, a lot of a lot of your fiction, John, is very high concept in nature. Like it's sure. it's something where the reason that you can you know meme it, like you were saying a few minutes ago, is because there's something. Well, there's a lot more layers operating in there that you can examine and deconstruct. That the outer surface of it is this kind of like glossy shell of possibility that we can kind of start to inspect, and like even that banality of when we're given a technology or we're given a resource, like what happens to it, our main character, Jamie and the, the Kaiju Preservation Society has to face the banality of just, this is the first chapter is this like perfect gem of deconstruction of this, the whole system of the gig economy and mm-hmm. the uh, particularly the type of CAO that gives birth to it and sees it as this like radical good from the fact that you have to sit in this stupid ass beanbag chair while someone else is standing there. And it's like, no, this is a radical means of seating. And like, look what this does to our power dynamics. Like, yeah, look what this does to our power dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think that there's like a thread of healthy skepticism, I will say that exists in Scalzi fic for (laughs) for systems of all kinds. Like if a human being makes a system that the person who makes that system is either going to fall into some kind of trap of exploiting it or some kind of trap mm. of failing to understand its nuances such that you end up with other people putting sims in boxes, spinning around and peeing on themselves. Sure. I mean, not that, not that that ever happens in real life, of course. No. We are all perfect actors in every way. And this is the, and this is the thing to, to get to it, you know, which is, you know, I'm 52 years old now. I have lived long enough to recognize that indeed the, the problem with systems, no matter how robustly they are built, is the people who operate them and inhabit them. You know, they, the, you can do a, 
the world's best security system, but it will still fail because there are humans involved, right? And humans will always be, humans will always repeat their passwords. Humans will always, you know, step away from their computers with their screens still up so that people can, you know, just pass by and take photos or something like that. There will always be a way that any system can be exploited. And that way is almost always the person. So when we are talking about systems and we are talking about how they can be exploited, what we are really talking about, I think, in the end, and the thing that I don't neglect in my fiction, is the fact that humans are going to human. Humans are, we're beautiful creatures, but we are still running 1.0 software that was developed when we were on the savannah hunting gazelles, right? <laughs> That's, that's who we are. That's what we do. We haven't evolved out of that particular bit of, of wetware, so to speak. And so that will lead us to having the uh, same issues over and over again, regardless of the systems and fail-safes that we put into them. You know, I've told this story before, but I worked at a company where the the IT admin kept the root password for the entire system on a sticky note underneath the keyboard on the desk. Sure. And sure. met this person again, you know, 10 years later, and they had a laptop and they wanted to show me something and we're sitting in a kitchen and they get up to go do something and the laptop is not logged in. But I remembered that old password and I typed it into the laptop and hit enter and it logged me in. It was the same uh -huh. exact root password from 10 years previously. Yep. And they walked up and were stunned that I had, quote unquote, hacked their laptop. How could you hack it? It's like, <laughs> and, you, and that's the thing. You never have to hack the network. You just hack the people. Yeah. And because the people are, are always the, the place where that's going to be a problem. I recently, not recently, within the last four years, finally just got myself a password manager, yeah. right? Yeah. And now that I am using the password manager regularly, I look back on the five passwords that I rotated through all my stuff and I was like, oh my God, it's, it's amazing <laughs> that somebody did not hijack yeah. literally all my stuff. Yeah, no, nowadays, because, you know, for various reasons, everything is password protected, everything has got... Two-factor. Two-factor. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And all that sort of stuff. It's like, here's your little here's your little timer. Here's the code. Oh, runs out, mm -hmm. you know. And it makes perfect sense to do it that way. But, you know, I can't, I can't be in judgment of anybody else because, like I said, I used the same five passwords for like 15 years. Yeah. So it's funny because I know so many people in IT and they they the first step is they institute a mandatory password change every couple of months right they build it into the system and their users uh -huh. revolt mm -hmm. and go right. oh my god you can't do this to me so they don't even get to right. the point where they can institute the two factor authentic authentication they they yeah. can't get there because they're they're fighting the battle of just changing your password every two months mm -hmm. right well you know and the thing is is that Inevitably, when you have when you change the password every two months, what it then becomes is password one, yep. password two, password three, yep. right? Exactly. And so you're not you're not helping, yeah. you know. Yeah. But again, this is this is this is a fascinating thing for uh, science fiction uh, writers to write. I remember one of the very early episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation, like season one, season two, before they got their 
space legs, so to speak. And there was a episode where Picard is talking about these aliens are violent. Humans evolved out of it, fortunately, but blah, blah. And I was like, no, 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 Jean-Luc Picard. Whoever wrote that line for you was wrong. You have not. You are only 300 years in the future. That's not That's not how evolution works. You are the same people as we are today. And that's the great thing for science fiction writers is, is that whether you're doing stuff that's in contemporary time, like for me with Kaiju or with the interdependency where it was 1,500 years in the future, you're not thinking to yourself, how have humans evolved? Because so far as unless you're actually like putting things in their brains or have somehow enforced evolution, you got the same, you got the same people that were, that are alive today, were alive 2000 years ago, which is why we can read Greek mythology and be like, oh, Zeus, what are you doing? You know, it all makes sense to us because we recognize the same humans that, that are, that we've always experienced. You know, one of the things that I thought about immediately when you said we don't have to hack the system, you just have to hack the people is that a lot of ways, if you're writing a story, you're just trying to hack people. You know, you're trying to, well, you're, yeah. you're trying to come up with, with a series of events and, and a, a sort of idea of, of a story and a, a bunch of characters and situations and whatnot that are going to push the buttons of the right kind of people in the right kind of way. And I was talking a little bit with uh, Patrick about this before, before you joined us, that one of the things that really sort of stuck with me is, huh, it, I, I really feel like absent your really explicit evidence otherwise that John is revisiting the move from lock-in where we have a non-gender specified first person narrator character in, sure. in the form of Jamie. And I, as, as, as hacks of the audience goes, I think that's a particularly interesting one because having sure. read lock-in, having listened to Will Wheaton's narration of it rather than the other narration of it that you can get on or could get on audiobook. I don't know if they're both still available. I have a I have a pretty sharp notion of who Chris was in that book for me. But of course there's this there's this opportunity for Chris or in the case of the Kaiju Preservation Society Jamie to be someone different for another reader. And I guess like why is that a hack of choice that you're like no I want to do that again? For me there were a couple reasons. One, when I was doing it with Locken there was a textual reason to do it mm-hmm. that made sense within the universe which is that Chris it has Hayden syndrome and they present in the world in a three, which is an Android it's body and a gender. Yeah. 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 It doesn't necessarily have to be gendered. You can gender an Android body if you want, or if that's something that you as the person driving the three prefers, but you don't have to, in which case the way that people are going to apprehend the three is going to be without gender, unless there is something to, to give them some sort of gender clue. With uh, Kaiju, there wasn't necessarily a reason to do it in the text. Jamie's, Jamie's just doing what Jamie do. But on the other hand, there was not, for me, a particularly compelling reason to, within the text itself, to gender the character either. So I just didn't. Yeah. You know, I just like, well, well, let's do this. Part of the other reason, the other reason that I do it, though, is whether authors acknowledge it or not, and most of us do, or at least pay lip service to it, but the act of creation of the world of a story is not limited to the author themselves. We 
create it, we give it to readers, readers unpack it in their brains, right? This is what you're talking about. When we're, what we talk about when we're talking about hacking the humans. All creative work is a hack of some sort or another because we are intentionally putting, we're giving a package to the reader or listener or watcher and letting them unpack it in their own brains. And their own brains have their own set of experiences and their own set of preferences and their own way of looking at things. And sometimes it goes in surprising ways or in ways that we don't expect. You know, all those conservative people who are surprised to find out the lyrics of Rage Against the Machine are fundamentally like socialist, right? You're like, wait a minute, I didn't know that. But it's like, no, because your brain was listening to as opposed to, you know, some that are in forces are the same that burn crosses. You're not listening to that. You're listening to They're assuming the the machine is a printer. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Rage near the machine. Right. But there's always the unpacking that goes on in in the in the receiver of the of the creative work. And for me, I'm really interested in what that unpacking is. And so in some ways, when I'm writing stories and not gendering the protagonist is one of those ways, there are other ways as well. One of the things that I like to do is create an environment where the unpacking is is interesting in and of itself. Like what choices do you make for Jamie? What choices do you make for some of the other characters? What choices do you make when you're picturing the kaiju, which I don't give too much description to? Now, some people hate that, Yeah. right? They're like, I know why don't people. you describe yeah. the kaiju? I want to know what the kaiju look like. And I'm, you know, but for other folks, that's kind of, a, a feature rather than a bug because they know in their brain what they think a kaiju Well, you're giving them the space to hack themselves, as it were. Right. Yeah. Well, in what I what you want for them to do is, uh, and like I said, you know, I acknowledge as an author that part of the part of the process of the book becoming, you know, going out into the world is that it's a shared it's a shared relationship between me and whoever consumes it, right? And because I recognize that, it's interesting for me to see what other people come up with with my work, as opposed to just, you know, endless description and endless whatever and all this sort of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, there are 800 page epic fantasy books that go into extreme detail about the brocade in a, on a cape for the reason that people love that shit. Right. Yep. And absolutely will will eat that up. And I it's 100 percent valid. It's a great thing for the people who love it. I don't care about it my, myself. And so when I write, I don't put it in. Yeah. I'll you know, I will let uh, someone else do that work. And it's interesting to me with what they come up. Well, and what I what I was talking to Tracy about was I, I think that that opens it up for the reader. And it opens it up to more readers because now, you know, it's it's the whole Batman and Robin thing, right? They 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 said that they added Robin to soften Batman, but also because they they felt that the kids couldn't imagine themselves as Batman, but they could imagine themselves as Robin running around with Batman. Sure. So when you open it up sure. that way, it, it allows people to put themselves in the story and and identify with it in a better way. 
to your point about, you know, a lot of people don't like it or some people don't like it. I remember doing that with a critique group many, many years ago. Like I wrote a story where I never used any pronouns. I never assigned any gender or anything, race, nothing. Mm -hmm. And there were people in that group who absolutely fucking hated that and gave me so much shit because they absolutely had to have it. You couldn't do it that way, you know, and I, and sure. Yeah. And I think all, all they, all they're telling you there is what their passwords are. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now that said, let's flip it the other way around and, and acknowledge something, which is, I, I mean, I think that you're not wrong that people can see themselves in Jamie in a way that they may not have if I had specifically gendered Jamie one way or another in the text. But the flip side of that, and this has been pointed out to me by a number of people who aren't high, straight, white, male, cis like me, is that uh, the, the cultural default is so strong that given no identification one way or another, people will, and not just white people, but most people, because of the cultural thing, will always default to white or to male, or to straight, mm-hmm. or to uh, or to cis. And so these are the things that you have to be aware of. I mean, I remember patting myself on the back about something specifically in Android's dream where I was like, I didn't do this description because I wanted everybody to be able to see themselves in that character. And friends of mine who are not straight white men said, well, that's great, but also recognize that if you don't actively put people of color in your books, or you don't actively put LGBTQ people in your work, then in many ways they won't exist. And so that is a balance that I actually think about quite a lot. There there are times and places uh, where it makes sense to have you know, description be very minimal. There are other times where it makes sense to point out that folks exist in the world. The character of Neve in yeah. Kaiju is it uses they, them pronouns. Why does Neve use they, them pronouns? Because in my world, lots of people I know use they, them pronouns, and it makes sense to uh, acknowledge that in this world, particularly in a world of scientists and a world of Uh, people who are in the academic milieu or were before they joined KPS, there are going to be people who are very open about using they, them pronouns. They would exist now uh, in that setting. So they should exist in the setting that I've created as well. And so, like I said, it's been an evolution for me of knowing or trying to figure out where that line exists to make sure that representation happens while at the same time, leaving space for people to imagine themselves in the characters that I'm putting into the work. Absolutely. All right. Well, we we are running short on time here. Do we have enough time for a very quick pick of the week? What do you think, think Patrick? Can we we squeak it in? We'll squeak it in. Picks of the week. Yes, John, we have music. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I should I should clarify yeah. that my wow, we're running short of time wasn't a shut up, John. So much as it was a like <laughs> I I'm authentically interested to know what what my my companions here have as picks of the week and don't want to lose my shot. So uh, on that note, Patrick, what's your pick? My my pick is writer retreats. So mm-hmm. I I just did two in back to back, two weekends in a row. I, I, I understand that not everybody has mountains nearby where they can go and be kind of isolated and 
but it was it was really nice to jumpstart because I as I've talked about you know with mom and the Alzheimer's and and then her passing and then my brother's suicide attempt <laughs> and then the cat dying it's just been piled on one on top of the other on top of the other so it's been really really hard for me to to write at all so to I, I did one by myself where I went up and I, the whole goal was to to just jumpstart and try to try to write again. And I was able to yeah. do 13,000 words over a weekend. It's nice to be able to have access to places where it's out of season. I could get a little cabin in the mountains for 200 bucks for the weekend. Uh, I know that again, not everybody can do that, but if you can, uh, it's just the idea of getting out of your house, getting somewhere else, sitting down with no distractions. Uh, it's not necessarily yeah. the setting. It's just getting away for a minute. And then, because I was telling friends that I was doing that, they wanted to go as well. So we ended up doing a second one <laughs> with them where we went up and uh, we got a different cabin and we just sat there and, and wrote and and then we played some board games because, you know. Fantastic. That's who we are. So <laughs> writer retreats, uh, if you can do it, even if it's a little hotel somewhere nearby, I think it gives you a great opportunity to kind of unplug and get yeah. some work done. Reset the mechanism a bit. How about you, John? Uh, there are two books that I've been uh, reading recently and suggesting to folks. Uh, one is The Cartographer by Pung Shepherd, mm -hmm. which came out the same day as the Kaiju Preservation Society, which was great for me because while I was traveling, I was able to read it and uh, kind of get away from my own writing for, uh, you know, for a plane ride or two. Mm -hmm. And then I very recently read Sweep of Stars by Morris Broadus, and uh, which came out a couple of weeks ago now. And that was really a fun space opera. Yeah. And I, I would recommend it for uh, everyone. So those are the two things that have come out recently that I've been recommending to people. We just had Mo on and he is a delight as always. Yes, I did. I did an event with him recently, too. And the way that that happened was Tor was like, you two never shut up. You fun. <laughs> let's actually let's actually use this for good for once. Right. It, it, turn your powers exactly towards righteousness. That's amazing. Yep. No, and that's exactly how it happened. You know, it's like we we popped on the on, on the Zoom and blah, we were talked straight for now. It's funny because in the early, early days of my podcasting stuff, I had Mo on quite a bit. Because mm -hmm. we, we would see each other at conventions and we would just have so much fun and I would always invite him. And it had been a really long time since we've gotten to chat with him. And Tracy said, we've got some openings in the in the schedule. Who would you like to talk to? Maurice brought us. Like I just <laughs> immediately. Yeah. And uh, so yeah. it was a lot of fun talking to him again. What's your pick, Tracy? I, uh, I have a board game. And uh, I've chosen no. it. I, I know, a right? We never game? do those in Townsend you? House. Never. Um, so I, I have chosen it because it is so deeply on the nose for our whole conversation. It's called Dinosaur Island. And it is basically how do we make Jurassic Park the board game without getting sued? And so it is. But the idea behind it is that you are John Hammond or the entrepreneur who is envisioning this crazy public attraction. And so you have set up this great big uh, dinosaur theme park. You're, you have an island. You and all the other players have different islands. And your goal is to make the best dinosaur theme park. And you have to save certain resources to buy the genetic materials to make certain types of cloned animals. And then you have to, of course, create the right habitats for them. And some of the cards are just 
ridiculously wonderful in the way that they wink at the like the flavor text on them, the way they wink at you as the player. You have to build attractions, like different types of you know merry-go-rounds and, and various other stuff. There's uh, food restaurants that you can make, and one of them is called Clever Grill which is my absolute <laughs> favorite card in the entire thing. And it is, it's a really, it's a very resource management heavy. So it's very chewy. So don't, don't sleep on it. If you're the sort of person who likes really kind of fiddly games that have a lot of dimensions and a lot of replay, re- replayability. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for being with us, John. John, where can people find you and your books and all the stuff? Possibly your passwords. Well, my book. Yeah, my passwords are. No. <laughs> <laughs> what street so, did you grow up uh, on? Mm. <laughs> so my uh, books are available in bookstores everywhere, which is really convenient. I am at whatever.scalzy.com or just enter whatever or Scalzy into Google and it will take you there directly, more or less. And then, of course, on Twitter, I am Scalzi at Twitter. All right. Thanks so much for being with us, John. It was great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Spring will be sprunging. Wait, springing? Eh, I don't know. But anyway, it's happening soon. And that means it's time for a new bumper. First on the agenda, Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle over at Beyond the Trope should be scratching their ears and wondering who's been talking about them. It's me! I've been talking about them here and in other places like Capricorn 42. Why? Because they have a pretty nifty little podcast. They talk to authors and artists just like we do and release episodes on Tuesdays, just like we do. So if you subscribe to both our podcasts, it's like getting a double feature every week. In other news... I mentioned before Capricorn 42. That's because Tracy and I had a lot of fun there, especially spending time with several of our patrons. Becoming a patron doesn't just mean you get to hang out with us at conventions, although you might. It means also getting access to things like monthly hangouts, a patrons-only episode of the podcast every month, and even a private Facebook group where we talk about extra nerdy things. It's as close to the green room for the show as you can get without... You know, actually being in the green room. Check out patreon.com slash nerds for more information about becoming a backer. What's next? Well, I'll probably have to record another bumper. But that's easily days away or more. Who knows? <laughs> time. Time is so stupid. Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake. Patrick Louise. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's probably a good enough signal. <laughs>